a quick a quick announcement this morning, this afternoon, before I turn things over to uh, to Willa, who will introduce our guest speaker. Uh, for those of you keeping up with events related to the course that are outside the course, uh, Wednesday, which is tomorrow at 12 noon, part of the Research Unplugged series that is at the Penn State Downtown Theater. Alicia Clark will be doing uh, an hour on Isadora Duncan, Mother of Modern Dance. It might be very much of interest. So that's 12 noon, Penn State Downtown Theater on Allen Street near Panera Bakery. And uh, I hope you can attend. Thank you, Nancy. Let me just remind everyone that next Tuesday we will be back here in this room uh, to listen to Maureen Carr's lecture on the rag idiom, as in ragtime music in Stravinsky, which we look forward to. And uh, today, it's my great pleasure to introduce our final guest lecturer of the Weiss Seminar, Vanessa Schwartz. Professor Schwartz is professor of history, art history, and film at the University of Southern California, where she also directs uh, the graduate certificate, graduate program in visual studies. Professor Schwartz is really renowned for her work uh, at, the, at the intersection of urban studies, uh, with particular reference in her case to modern and contemporary France, and Paris in particular, visual studies and cultural history. She's authored or edited several groundbreaking books and a great many articles and book chapters in these fields and related ones. Let me cite here simply her co-edited volume of 1995 entitled Cinema and the Invention of Modern Life from University of California Press. Her wonderful 1998 book uh, entitled Spectacular Realities, Early Mass Culture in Fin de Siècle Paris, also with California. And uh, a second important co-edited volume of 2004, The 19th Century Visual Culture Reader from Routledge Press. She also has forthcoming with Oxford University Press a book entitled A Very Short Introduction, Modern France. And Professor Schwartz's current research uh, is on a project entitled The Jet Age, and it's taking her squarely into the France of uh, the age of the 20th and 21st centuries of uh, aviation, transport, and technology. So a bit of a departure from her previous work. Professor Schwartz has lectured extensively on French cinema, on visual history, on photography, on celebrity, on the history of Paris in the 19th century, and on many other related and interrelated topics. Last month, she was in Europe lecturing at University College London and as a visiting distinguished guest at the International Working Group on Visual Culture in Heidelberg, Germany. And last year, she had a residency. She held a residency at McGill University as the Beaverbrook Visiting Scholar. Before I introduce Professor Schwartz's talk, let me remind you or tell you, if you're hearing it for the first time, that right after this lecture at 3 p.m., we are going upstairs to 242 Borland, where Professor Schwartz will conduct a workshop on a special issue of the journal Urban History that she has co-edited on the topic of urban icons, including the Eiffel Tower and other types of urban icons. And what she will present and demonstrate and lead a discussion around specifically is the uh, multimedia companion to this journal issue, which takes the form of a really phenomenal website, uh, interactive website, that really exemplifies everything that's best in research, not only in urban studies and visual history and Parisian history, but also in uh, the digital humanities. So you're all cordially invited to attend. There'll be refreshments uh, at 3 p.m. following today's talk. Professor Schwartz's talk today on the Belle Epoque that never ended, the Can-Can and 1950s Frenchness films, is based in part on material from her most recent book of 2007 from University of Chicago Press, entitled It's So French, Hollywood, Paris, and the Making of Cosmopolitan Film Culture. This book won the Chouinard Prize from the Society for French Historical Studies for the best book in the history of Franco-American relations, as well as the award for the best subsequent book from Phi Alpha Theta. And It's So French has just been translated into French and will be uh, coming out very shortly in French in France from Edition Complex in Paris. So again, I'm just delighted to welcome uh, Vanessa Schwartz. Thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to, um, to be here today 
I want to thank uh, Willis Silverman and uh, all of you and the Weiss Seminar for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure to speak to so many students and uh, colleagues. And I will um, begin this talk with a film clip that I want to set up. As you were coming in, you saw clips from the film that I'm actually be going, going to begin with, although we hadn't, in fact, planned that in advance. So what I want to do is just let you know that the film I want to begin with is, uh, show you a clip from, is called An American in Paris. And it won the best picture of 1951. It was the first movie musical to actually win best picture, in fact. And um, it's the opening moments of the film. So let me just show you a few minutes of An American in Paris. These are the only moments of the film shot on location by a second unit. This is Paris, and I'm an American who lives here. My name's Jerry Mulligan, and I'm an ex-GI. In 1945, when the Army told me to find my own job, I stayed on. And I'll tell you why. I'm a painter. All my life, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And for a painter, the mecca of the world for study, for inspiration, and for living is here on this star called Paris. Just look at it. No wonder so many artists have come here and called it home. Brother, if you can't paint in Paris, you better give up and marry the boss's daughter. We're on the left bank now. That's where I'm billeted. Here's my street. Culver City, California. The past couple of years, I've gotten to know practically everyone on the block. And a nicer bunch you'll never meet. Back home, everyone said I didn't have any talent. They might be saying the same thing over here, but it sounds better in French. I live upstairs. No, 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 not there. One flight up. Now, in some ways, this narrative begins with kind of eternal cliches of Frenchness. You know, Jerry saying things sound better in French, the painting cliches. But there's a tension between the visual and the verbal narrative, because the visual narrative is very punctuated by 19th century Paris, the emphasis on the opéra, the Pont Alexandre III, the Arc de Triomphe, I mean, there's a lot of Paris that's older than the 19th century, after all. But we don't get it. It doesn't appear in this Paris that we just got. So this kind of emphasis by this, as I said, second unit direction that's not Vincent Minnelli shooting. And in fact, they initially intended to go over and shoot in 1951 uh, in, uh, in Paris. But Preston Ames, the art director, insisted that they don't do it because he said to Gene Kelly, have you ever danced on cobblestones? And, uh, and it wasn't, in fact, until Gigi uh, in 1958 that they do actually go and shoot on location for a very long time. And uh, all of that is uh, recounted in uh, a great deal of detail in It's So French, um, which some of this uh, material is, um, is taken from. So these issues of Frenchness were things that I was very interested in in, uh, in my book. And I was interested, in some sense, on the one hand, in these ideas of a kind of eternal Frenchness. But really, what I was interested in is this kind of idea that Frenchness was very much marked by the 19th century and the long half-life of the 19th century. And not just the 19th century, but it turned out the Belle Epoque. And that's why I uh, titled this lecture, The Belle Epoque That Never Ended. And so I would argue that as I began a book that turned out to be about the 1950s, I wrote a book like that only as someone who was a scholar of the 19th century really could. And so some of you, I think the undergraduates here, have read from my first book a small portion of Spectacular Realities. And that book, in a sense, was inspired by a grand kind of theoretical 
messy thousand pages that came to be known as the Arcades Project, written by a German theorist named Walter Benjamin. And it was initially through Walter Benjamin that I approached the study of 19th century Paris. And I attempted a kind of archaeology of a visual culture and a culture's visuality that did not engage much of the cliched images of the Belle Epoque, which you're about to see, and it's can-can. And so when you think of those cliched images, French Barbie, of course, kind of lives, the, uh, lives them up. And her, the back of her box is kind of fabulous because she talks about uh, Toulouse-Lautrec and Montmartre. Again, things that did not appear in my own study of uh, Belle Epoque Paris. So I'd kind of dispensed with the cliches, I felt, of the Belle Epoque. But then and when I finished that book, I thought, well, how did they get to be the cliches? Because when I studied 19th century Paris, I found a very different uh, 19th century Paris. Here, another much more recent kind of you know, renovation of these cliches, discover all that's French from Monet to Fries. Uh, and again, you, know, uh, you have, again, a kind of can-can uh, girl. So what I was interested in was probably those cliches, I thought to myself, had drawn me to, the, to Paris in the first place, and eventually to Walter Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's project posed the relation of a place and a time. He called Paris the capital of the 19th century in his famous formula. And then he wrote a kind of incomprehensible essay about it that no undergraduate should ever have to read. So that's the good news for the undergraduates, and all the graduate students here know they've had to read it. Um, and, and they're probably um, still regretting it. So, um, and, and then there's the 1,000 pages um, that make up the body of that 20-page uh, you know, essay. Um, as those of you who are familiar with this project uh, know, Benjamin sought not only to describe Paris, but also to ponder a theory and even a philosophy of history at the same time. Benjamin's point of departure were the passing fashion of these arcades, which were in a sense the first mini shopping malls. And he thought that these structures encapsulated a kind of complex sense of modern temporality. Now, Benjamin asked about the long half-life of 19th century Paris in the 20th century. Benjamin considered the question at one remove from the Paris of the heyday of the Moulin Rouge, just by one generation. Well, I wondered how long this half-life was and what twists and turns it might have taken over more time and across more space by looking at these 1950s Frenchness films. And later on, if you come to the Urban Icons demonstration, you see I was also working this project out by looking at um, discussions of the Eiffel Tower in particular. So I was interested in these 50s Frenchness films and in ideas about Frenchness in uh, the US and in France in order to, to ask whether Frenchness uh, exists, but also whether there was a special purchase that visual culture and film in partic particular had in, in, in interjecting 19th century Parisian culture into the 20th century. So the question is, what kind of lasts and what moves forward from the period that you've been studying in this class? And is there a special relationship that film has in kind of containing the 19th century fin de siècle culture that you have been studying? So let me return then to an American in Paris. An American in Paris initiated what I think of as a wave of 1950s Frenchness films. Films that were, for the most part, Paris films, bracketed by two of the most celebrated films of the genre, Academy Award-winning Best Pictures, An American in Paris in 1951, and Gigi in 1958, also a Best uh, Picture winner. And by the way, there was a review in the New York Times, I don't know if any of you saw it, both were just released in Blu-ray editions this past weekend, so both were reviewed in the Sunday New York Times, <clears throat> You'll be happy, I'm sure, to know the undergraduates can go get the Blu-ray editions now. Um, and, and it's actually interesting because they have interesting bonus materials, including for Gigi, the French version of Gigi, 
on which the American Gigi was, uh, you know, very much based, although the review said it was entirely based on the French version, which is somewhat true, except that um, what the ending is totally different, because of course they have to get married in the end in the American version for the production code, which is not true in the French version. He also said that uh, the American Paris was filmed in Paris, which is not true. Um, but now you know the truth. Um, aren't you glad you were here? So anyway, um, so those are the two, uh, 51 and 58. But in between are such well-known films as Sabrina, 1953, Moulin Rouge, not the one you're thinking of, um, 1952, Lily, 1953, April in Paris, 1954, French Can-Can, 1954, um, Daddy Long Legs, 1955, Lust for Life, 1956, Funny Face, 1957, the remake of Ninochka, Silk Stockings, 1957, Lay Girls, 1957. These films confirm familiar post-war themes, such as the Americanization of Europe and the Cold War, already identified by historians. In this context, the Frenchness films can be read as vehicles of American ideology. Harmless and feminized France uh, is incarnated by the dancer-turned-actress Leslie Caron, who, by the way, is Franco-American. Her mother was uh, American. She's in orphan roles in American in Paris, in Lily, and in Daddy Longlegs. This, of course, is an overly generalized picture. I hate this kind of interpretation. Um, they read these films as transparent vehicles for ideology and as a way to measure attitudes of one nation towards another through its depiction in film. Surely these films can and should be understood as a way that does more than reflect what we already know about political and ideological climates of the period. If not, why would you study films at all? Right? If you already know this, why like just look at the movies and see what you already know uh, about politics? So again, especially for students, don't just look at movies and say they reflect the Cold War that we already know exists by studying diplomacy. That's not, I would argue, why we study movies. And I hope to give an example and demonstration of why and how we study visual culture to really show the work that visual culture does. Um, and, and let me know if it doesn't work for you. So um, what, I'm sure you will, uh, what, what is most striking about the Frenchness films of the 1950s is that they represent France as a particular time and place. Paris, 1900. Belle Epoque Paris, which straddled the two centuries, became a shorthand and a summary representation of France in popular culture, and especially for movie audiences in the 1950s. That period is condensed in these films in a number of often repeated images. The Can-Can, the Moulin Rouge, the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings and palette, and the images associated with commercial art, such as posters. At the time, in the 50s, critics noted the fascination with the Belle Epoque in the Frenchness films. In 1958, a Time Magazine film critic described Gigi as, quote, the most ornate of cinema's recurrent funerals for the French fin de siècle. <laughs> Films such as The American in Paris, ostensibly set <clears throat> in the 1950s, were in fact vehicles for fin de siècle imagery. So are these simply nostalgia films that use the kind of post-World War I mythology of the fin de siècle as an innocent and joyous time in an attempt to sidestep the realities of the Vichy regime's collaboration, especially as the Americans positioned themselves as liberators in France. Is the long half-life of the Belle Epoque uh, in Paris a fancy way of talking about nostalgia? No. 1950s Frenchness films need to be contextualized as part of a much longer-term history of visual culture, in which Paris served as a beacon of the commercial visual cultural forms that would come to dominate the new century that began with the French Belle Epoque. In the domain of popular culture, affinity and celebration marked the connection between France and America, rather than the rejection and sense of superiority that diplomatic historians have drawn in the realm of foreign relations and art historians have noted as part of the emergence of American art and American art dominance after the war. The Frenchness films stand as evidence of an important and influential shared cultural project in which filmmakers on both sides of the Atlantic 
drew toward each other in close affiliation rather than drawing pistols or battle lines in the name of cultural invasion and domination. So to be more specific, I want to suggest that the films function as heritage films through which Paris and the Frenchness that it invoked celebrated cinema's heritage in the crucible of fin de siècle France. These English language Frenchness films link the history of entertainment to a transnational context of development from Paris 1900 to 1950s Hollywood. As heritage films, they work to situate 1950s filmmaking in relation to the generative historical moment of the modern visual culture of which they were a part. The films pay homage to France in order to celebrate film itself as an emblem of modern life and finally to flaunt cinema's eclipse of earlier static forms of visual representation. At a moment when television introduced grave concern over the future of film going, these films helped to underscore the magic and power of film. The films are impressive, technically rendered aesthetic achievements, some of the best of the period, that self-consciously foregrounded matters of visual artifice and that made the case both to filmmakers and to the imagined audience that entertainment could also be art. Filmmakers turned to depictions of France then as a way to situate the contemporary visual culture that they were producing. In what might seem counterintuitive, the Belle Epoque films are not nostalgia for the good old days, like say a film like Meet Me in St. Louis, but rather as the link that helped establish cultural continuity and a historical context for post-war filmmakers, American post-war filmmakers, and their cultural product. The film suggests that in the 1950s, American filmmakers and their audiences, which were worldwide audiences, identified France as much with mass entertainment and mass culture and film and the fin de siècle as with the high culture of painting, literature, and luxury go goods with which France is regularly identified in the United States and in the world. In other words, these films about the French Belle Epoque and its visuality linked America's premier cultural expression, film, to its French origins. Here is the long shadow cast by Paris, capital of the 19th century. The French Belle Epoque is a concept and its can-can codified, of course, the old Rabelaisian France in a commercialized and visually provocative and sustainable way through the emergence of the entertainment industry that manufactured La Gaîté Française. Histories of fin de siècle Paris have traditionally focused on the culture of Montmartre because its entertainment venues picked up on and then further manufactured the mythology of this Gaîté Française. As the French Consul General noted in 1953 about a film uh, whose subject was the painter Edgar Degas, quote, it would come as no surprise if they came up with the title Montmartre to capitalize on the success of Moulin Rouge, unquote. Now such an easy transition between art and entertainment, wherein a film about the painter Degas could be imagined in association with entertainment underlines many of the principles of the Frenchness films. So Degas and Montmartre in 1953, people are saying makes perfect sense to title these, where of course Degas, as you know, he's an impressionist painter, really had nothing to do with Montmartre. But in 1953, people get that this would easily be something that people could identify with. The centrality of French art in the Frenchness films conveyed, of course, that they were quality films. Their producers showcased these films at the Cannes and Venice Film Festivals, and they garnered Academy Award nominations, as I've already said, prizes, including Best Pictures. A film, um, I told you that, uh, one thing I didn't tell you about Gigi, is that when, in 1958, Gigi had won the most Academy Awards of any film up to that uh, time in 1958. And again, for a movie musical, this was really quite rare. Reviewers noted that the films were, quote, 
so elegant. This is a Gigi, an imaginative in conception that we can compare it only from this point of view to Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête, unquote. In other words, Frenchness films about France not only merited comparison with French art films like Cocteau's, but also the implication seems to be that because the subject matter was itself elegant, the films were elegant themselves. A preview report for Gigi noted that one viewer found the movie, quote, the most elegant Hollywood musical ever made, unquote. Gigi opened in New York in an unprecedented way as a cultural event. MGM rented a Broadway theater, the Royal. For its six-month run there, it sold out every performance and then moved to the Sutton Movie Theater further uptown where it broke attendance records. Who here has seen Gigi? Raise your hand. Okay, now if you're an undergraduate, raise your hand. Who's seen it? Okay, all the rest of you, please go see it. Um, given the remarkable range of French art from which to choose, why choose this particular fin de siècle art as the visual inspiration for and sometimes even the subject of the Frenchness films? As the French consul general, Raoul Bertrand, wrote to Paris, having been enlisted by MGM to help them get permission for their Degas film, quote, the studio's interest in making the film is based on wanting to take advantage of the worldwide taste for the French Impressionists. This taste has also been spread by the global success of such films as An American in Paris and Moulin Rouge, unquote. Thus, while this French diplomat recognized a general taste for Impressionist paintings, in his attempt to get permission from the Dugas family, he noted that the films added great public interest and thus value to the artists and to the nation where they had worked. Uh, yet his note also makes clear that the popularity of the Frenchness films also offered the French government and its officials a flattering mirror in which they could see their own importance refracted in brilliant technicolor. But of course, filmmakers had to value the Impressionists in the first place. Vincent Minnelli explained in an interview with the Cahier du Cinéma, published while Gigi was still in production, quote, one can always return to the Impressionists and discover something new. They are eternally striking. It is perhaps the richest school, and, and I have had to satisfy myself with the can, if I had had to satisfy myself with the canvases of one school, I would choose the Impressionists, unquote. Minnelli's comment reminds us of the singular status of Impressionist art in the United States from the 1870s onward, which I have no time to elaborate on here, but I describe for quite a bit in my book, especially about, of course, the American collectors who bought Impressionist art in France. You know, I don't know if we talked about this in this class, but you know about the Havermeyers and Mary Cassatt advising them. They were buying Impressionist art at the moment it was being produced, brought it to the United States, made bequests to American museums, and that's why American museums have a lot of Impressionist uh, art in ways that even French museums uh, don't, because Americans actually bought the paintings at the time uh, they were being produced in ways that the French actually didn't. Um, so good for America. Um, what is more, um, and, and made it popular, uh, what is more complicated about the film's relation to art is that they did not merely offer a diet of great, American, uh, great Impressionist paintings. In a sense, these films walked a fine line between uplift through art and the exploitation of familiar visual cliches. The films displayed both paintings and the more familiar and widely reproduced popular art made in Belle Epoque Paris. For example, Gigi's credits unfurl across a set of drawings by the illustrator Sem. These illustrations were owned by the film's producer, Arthur Freed, who collected Sem illustrations. The films actively promoted a tight connection between painting and more commercial forms of artistic production, such as illustrations and posters. For example, Moulin Rouge opens with a tracking shot. I'll let you watch the film. This is uh, John Huston's Moulin Rouge, the first. Well, it's actually the second, but never mind. So that is La Guinée, 
this this is a reference to Manet's The Bar at the Folie Bergère. Nothing is. This is her partner, Valentin de Dissocé, also known as Valentin de Bonus, her dancing partner. And just to um, give you the comparison, here is the um, Lautrec uh, poster, and here the um, clip from the film. So again, to show you the way in which the films were drawing on the, the, um, the visual culture of the, the period. Now, no artist seemed to play as central a role as the iconic artist of the period in the Frenchness films as did Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. His name, his art, Montmartre, the Can-Can, all made what became obligatory appearances in the Frenchness films. In his own time, his work tied the Montmartre and Montmartre leisure depicted in his posters to the aesthetic achievement that Philip Dennis Cates, who I think has been here this year, has labeled the color revolution, and uh, a topic that my own student, Laura Calba, uh, has written about, I think, very uh, brilliantly in her own dissertation uh, recently completed about color in the 19th century, um, which is uh, about much more than color lithography. Um, his reputation, Lautrec's, um, in both Paris and the United States grew after his early death at age 37 in 1901. In fact, <coughs> his untimely death assured that he painted nothing after the Belle Epoque. By the eve of the Second World War, the Bulletin of the Art Institute of Chicago had already dedicated articles to his work in 1929 and 1935. In June of 1951, Newsweek magazine noted the publication of a book of all 31 of his posters in a single volume. Toulouse-Lautrec's popularity and his international fame by the 1950s beyond the world of art and art collectors does suggest his production in oil paintings and pastels as well as in the more commercial forms of the poster and lithograph made his work familiar to a general audience. In many ways, although France had long been seen, do I have the, um, yes, this just to give you a sense of how well known uh, Toulouse-Lautrec uh, is. This is the um, Toulouse-Lautrec Van Eusen's Moulin Rouge shirt. This is in my own collection. Um, this was an ad um, that was a tie-in for the movie. Um, in many ways, although France had long been um, seen as an international center for the production of art, the late 19th century production of French commercial visual culture left an important legacy through the popular imagery, posters, and paintings that were produced in Paris and that depicted the pleasures of modern life. Long before museum shops produced art on coasters, scarves, and the like, reproductions of Parisian fin de siècle imagery probably circulated in America, as the earlier observation of the French Consul General suggests. Many viewers of the Frenchness films knew the Toulouse-Lautrec posters, and in that way, the films transmitted familiar visual cliches dressed up as art. In addition, the film's production teams had relatively easy access to visual materials to inspire the look of their films. For example, when Cecil Beaton needed inspiration for the costumes for Gigi, he turned to the readily available images from fin de siècle periodicals, Les Modes, Le Théâtre, and Femina, available in most American city libraries. The sheer volume of the images produced as posters, lithographs, and periodical illustrations no doubt contributed to their continued circulation after the 19th century. Ad agency-created teams could find small copies, and that's what you're looking at, of Toulouse-Lautrec posters to put in the background, as in this Van Eusten's Moulin Rouge uh, Moulin Rouge shirt ad. Since the shirt's cut and style had nothing to do with the Moulin Rouge, the film's star, Jose Ferrer, modeled it in front of copies of the posters. A materialist explanation, then, for the way that Lautrec and Montmartre became the touchstone 
for representing Paris 1900 emerges. Many of his images began their lives as illustrations, lithographs, posters, as opposed to paintings. At the same time, however, because he painted as well, he could be understood as an artist, and thus his commercial work could be integrated as art. Who better than Hollywood director to seize on the notion that commercial art was art nevertheless? In this way, their familiarity with French visual imagery would shore up the status of the most artistic of directors and the most quality-oriented of producers in the studios, people like Vincent Minnelli and Arthur Freed. The fact that so many of the images depicted an environment of leisure and entertainment only reinforced their suitable presence in films whose own creators imagined themselves as the paragons of both art and entertainment. The films, however, do more than simply display art or underline the compatibility of art and commerce. Fin de siècle visual culture, with its illustrated press, its wax museums and posters, was cinematic before the fact, as I argued elsewhere, you know, in Cinema Nina's Amount of Life and Spectacular Realities and everything I did for 10 years. These films, um, you know, so, you know, I believe it. I uh, hope you do too. These films make explicit both the importance of visual culture in late 19th century Paris and the connection between the broader visual culture of late 19th century Paris and the contemporary film culture of the 1950s. Paris and Hollywood formed an axis of cultural circulation in which the former served as the cultural crucible for the latter. Although there were important extra cinematic forces at work, such as increased tourism to France after the war, it stimulated the production of travelogues, economic reasons to shoot on location that I don't have time to talk about, but if you're really interested in the fact that they couldn't take the money out of France, and I can explain all of that. The Frenchness films also suggest that American film was connected to French culture beyond the mere exploitation of cliches of Parisian gaiety and the association of France with art. By literally animating the static visual culture of the bygone France of the 1890s, the Frenchness films both connected to and then updated such classic fin de siècle cultural forms as the poster. Aside from the opening of, the, of Moulin Rouge, the film that you saw described above, the film includes a tracking shot of a Morris column, for example, uh, those characteristic items of the Parisian street furniture that served as billboards with Toulouse-Lautrec's Jane Avril poster dissolving. And then what you see above is this shot, and then it literally dissolves into Zsa Zsa Gabor as Jane Avril. And by the way, the Frenchness films were very good for the Gabor sisters <laughs> because they played in all of them because they're these kind of cosmopolitan-accented Europeans, what are they? So they're in all these movies. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so Jean Jean was Jane Avril in, uh, in uh, Moulin Rouge. And, and what's interesting is it takes the poster and then it dissolves and you see the image on the poster literally coming to life as Jean Jean Gabor, as Jane Avril. Uh, the camera kind of, you know, moves in and, and she literally performs and kind of comes to life from the poster. As one reviewer of Moulin Rouge noted, it is a moving poster of the splendid 1890s. In Gigi, the other Gabor, that's Eva, uh, skates in the Palais des Glaces, and it's hysterical because neither she nor Jacques Bergerac could actually ice skate, so they have to put them on a, you know, um, on a, a stand. Um, but they did renovate the old Palais des Glaces uh, for the occasion of the shooting of Gigi, since it was shot, in fact, on location in the Palais des Glaces. They shot, shot on location in Maxime. I mean, the whole shooting of Gigi on location is totally fascinating because it was in the summer. They had unbelievable difficulty because they are holed up in the Georges V Hotel where there is no air conditioning. And Lerner and Lowe are writing the score while they are there and complaining that they are dying of heat prostration. Um, they also don't have enough electricity. They have huge, huge electric cords in the Tuileries. The story of the shooting on location is quite fascinating. If you're interested, if you're a film person, I don't know if anyone here is in film studies, but it's a really interesting story of location shooting 
Um, and this was the, the era, the beginning of location shooting uh, around the world. So for those interested in film production, it's quite fascinating, uh, frankly, and um, entertaining about Americans um, having to tolerate the world of no air conditioning. Um, but, but anyway, so, but here again, you see the, um, the, the way in which the films are just literalizing these posters. They're just like, we're gonna dress them up like the Chéret poster. And there, Ava Gabor is dressed right out of the kind of Jules Chéret poster advertising uh, the Palais des Glaces. So plot and character took a back seat to the goal of creating stunning visual effects in the Frenchness films, which is one reason why studying them as ideological constructs for the post-war era can be thought of as a problem. An American in Paris developed around Gershwin's score of the same title that apparently some of you have studied very recently that Gene Kelly decided he wanted to transform into a ballet. The success of the British-made ballet film The Red Shoes by Pressburger and Powell in 1948, another great and important film, no doubt had been a revelation to both the MGM producer Arthur Freed and Gene Kelly. It had been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. It had been shot on location in Monte Carlo along the Côte d'Azur and featured a 20-minute ballet. According to Michael Powell's memoirs, Kelly told him he screened The Red Shoes at MGM 15 to 20 times for the executives before he got acceptance for the MGM script, which was written by Alan J. Lerner, and Kelly told him the film was full of quotes from The Red Shoes. Powell claims never to have seen an American in Paris. Kelly claims later never to have screened The Red Shoes. The ballet in An American in Paris is the crowning achievement of an already aesthetically ambitious film that linked its Parisian setting through its artistry and to the visual spectacle of the dance. As studio head Dory Shari recounted, quote, I told Schenck, that's Nicholas in the New York office, this picture is going to be a great picture because of the ballet or it will be nothing. Without the ballet, it is just a cute and nice musical, unquote. The goal of the ballet, according to the script summary, was, quote, to accomplish choreographically, dramatically, and scenically what the great Impressionist paintings accomplished in their medium through the use of color and light and form, unquote. In his memoir, Minnelli explained that they approached the ballet as a painter would, quote, with bold splashes of color, unquote. The art department at MGM ran a contest to see which designs, quote, would most closely approximate scenes of Paris as they might have been painted by Rousseau, Lautrec, etc. Although each of the ballet's sequences evokes an artist's work, the one featuring the work of Toulouse-Lautrec, which is also the last of the settings to be introduced, does more than evoke a painter's style and canvas. The script called it a complete Lautrec environment, unquote. The scene is replete with image after image from his paintings and posters, some as cartoon cutouts, such as La Goulue and Valentin, which you've already seen in Moulin Rouge, others as wax-like figures, Aristide Bruant with his red scarf, the singers Paulus and Yvette Hubert as they were portrayed in Lautrec's imagery. Here you see, and you'll see again, kind of wax, literally they're wax figures, uh, it turns out, which was good for me. Uh, I'm always happy to see wax figures. And here you've got the images again, you can see, just, I didn't side by side them, but if you see, you know, let's see, you know, you see here, and then, you know, here, and right out of, uh, the imagery of uh, Lautrec. So the figures are lifeless and frozen. And I'm gonna show you a clip from Kelly dancing and prancing uh, against these kind of lifeless figures. Caron will be Jean Avril in this. And you'll see the kind of movement of cinema against the static culture of the Belle Epoque art. So let's go to the Kelly clip. But again, see the flatness of the you know images, Kelly also the wiggling. I mean, you know, which was you know very risky and somewhat almost unmanly, you could say, uh, for the 1950s. But again, to wiggle, to 
Again, and again, an aerial shot, something again is a perspective that the cinema can do in a way that sure there are you know, always you know, panoramic viewpoints in painting, but again, it's showing off all those camera angles. And, and as, uh, you know, by the way, Nelly didn't really direct uh, the ballet, which is a whole other issue, um, and Kelly did, and, uh, and he brought in a different cinematographer also, which is very interesting. But again, the motion of the, the, this number and the whole ballet is very interesting. But again, I think it flaunts what cinema can do that the static visual culture of the fin de siècle can't, but it's meant to show you that it's improved. It's very respectful, but it's like we are the children of this culture. So the Frenchness films frequently use the Belle Epoque as a hook on which to display the wonders of film, but insistently link filmmaking to the world of fin de siècle Paris as a sort of tribute and a self-conscious portrayal of its own origins. Announcing their genealogical debt, the films also display their evolutionary advantages over the work of artists such as Lautrec. In Moulin Rouge, Houston films a number of Toulouse-Lautrec's still images, and then goes back and forth by cross-cutting, and I'm gonna talk over this, but again, I want you to watch. Uh, this is from Moulin Rouge, between the legs of a dancer and a gaping spectator, creating this kind of flip, flip book effect again injecting a kind of sense of animation but one slow enough for the viewer to remember that persistence of vision allows us to see moving images itself in other words this is a mini lesson in what are the movies what the movies are is a trick of the persistence of vision and in case you don't know in the middle of the john Huston movie you are getting a mini lesson about persistence of vision so in a way, this technique serves, see this is why it's so much more interesting than like the Cold War, right? So okay, this technique serves to contrast still and moving images and emphasize motion, reminding viewers that film as a form both emerged from the world of spectacle consumption and commercialized sexuality that we associate with the belle époque, but film in a sense represents the next stage. So if the films visually linked the film of the 50s to what had been, the visual culture of the French 1890s, they emphasize their own superiority, but they draw this attention to, in a sense, craft and technique, but they also emphasize the creation of an aesthetic of artifice, especially one that depended on the creative manipulation of color photography. While Italian neorealism seemed to associate European filmmaking with small-scale black-and-white documentary realism, Frenchness films worked in an opposite re register that brought the viewer France in technicolor, which came the 50s equivalent of the Impressionist palette. The films reinterpret the interest in Europe that the immediate post-war curiosity about neorealism appeared to suggest, but drew on a visual idiom, both more familiar and more popular on both sides of the Atlantic. In this way, the films associate France and popular visual culture. For example, and this actually reminded me, I was uh, in, in Willa's book, um, this reminded me of this kind of relationship between kind of craft and uh, technique, and I know she's probably read her stuff or, or talked about it, and I want to show you uh, a clip here from Moulin Rouge, because this is a totally gratuitous scene, again, from John Huston's um, book, but I want you to see this, uh, this connection between 
um, uh, the transformation of one of Lautrec's paintings into a nightclub, into a poster for the Moulin Rouge nightclub. And you'll see craft involved in mass cultural image making. So Lautrec arrives to a lithographer's shop and the printmaker explains to the artist that his color palette can't be reproduced lithographically. And thus begins a collaboration between artist and technician in which both perform aesthetic and technical tasks. The artist improves the mixing technique, and you'll see how it works out. But this is very much in keeping with, I think, some of Willa's arguments, actually. You can bring them. Why not? Because there are no such fellows in lithography. Kind of green, but looks like green. But it isn't blue, pink, yellow, gray, anything but green. I mix the paints. I shall blend the ink. What are you doing? Dipping the stone. No, 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 no. It's impossible. No one has ever done crashy with a toothbrush. Thank you, well. Perfect. Not enough acid. The solution won't bite. Too much, and the fine lines will break. see John Huston from Mont Rouge. So this scene is totally extraneous to the film's plot, right? But it underscores its deeper message about the development of art in the context of its intersection with craft and technology in the modern world. That a film about a French artist's life would pause on this meditation about art and technology points toward the important way that it echoes for filmmakers in the 1950s, who surely practiced a technologically mediated and reproducible art, and how they might have thought about their own identity as modern artists. The Frenchness films, both visually opulent and artistic, dodged charges of super superficiality for the most part. Gigi, according to Time, was, quote, a full course feast for the eyes and ears. Perhaps no comment summarizes the, senses, the sense of these films as visually powerful in an economical <laughs> way as Stanley Kaufman, who was still writing back then, in The New Republic when he quipped that, quote, a deaf man could enjoy Gigi, unquote. Other reviews highlighted not only what was noted as the artificiality of an American in Paris, but also the Paris-Hollywood connection. Quote, this is Paris, the cultural center of a beautiful land which has Oz as its capital, where the trees are always green, unquote. The Frenchness film's visual originality in part resided in their use of color in much the same way that the Impressionist use of, use of color had drawn attention in the last third of the 19th century and has continued to help define the terms of painting ever since. Catholic World noted, quote, the extent to which the movies have learned to use technicolor as an artist does his palette has never been better demonstrated, unquote. Newsweek claimed that John Huston's Moulin Rouge was, quote, a ravishing technicolor portrait of Paris, unquote. Bosley Crowther, critic for the New York Times, declared that, quote, color, of course, is the big thing in this film, color that flows in a creation that quite overshadows the famous painter's poster art, unquote. Of Funny Face, reviewer Philip Hartung de declared, quote, the real stars are the photography and the color, which are used, unquote. 
During the seven-year period from an American in Paris to Gigi, the French audience for these films was also enormous. The strength of the French reception was celebrated by Robert Vogel, who worked for MGM, in a report to Arthur Fried describing its August 52 opening at the Colisee Theatre in Paris. Quote, the final ballet was watched in complete silence and followed by a thunder of applause, unquote. He noted that the number of admissions were 40% higher than for King Solomon's Mines and twice that of Caruso, and he foresaw that both a long run and receipts that he predicted would break the theater's record, unquote. Not only did Gigi garner more attention than that of the other films, if the number of reviews is any evidence, and I will not bore you with all the quotes, but it also benefited from an unprecedented successful publicity campaign in France. Le Film Français noted that French magazines plastered their covers with promotions for Gigi, and even Le Printemps, which of course is a major department store, uh, entirely devoted their display windows to the film Gigi, featuring dresses worn by Leslie Caron in the movie, which had now been copied for the French consumer. This is inside Le Printemps. Trying to capitalize on the popularity of the Belle Epoque films, French filmmakers themselves participated in the celebration of the Belle Epoque and thus paid Hollywood a backhanded compliment. The film that best exemplifies the French production of Frenchness films comes from the director most valued as a national treasure to the French at the time, and that is, of course, Jean Renoir. There are other films, Folie Bergère, The Ballon Rouge, not directed by Jean Renoir, that share the kind of color-coded uh, technicolor palette of these films and the association of Frenchness with Montmartre or music halls. But it's Jean Renoir's film, French Cancan, which in English is called Only the French Can, uh, 1954, that exemplifies the extent of the traffic between France and America, as well as the centrality of the cliché of the Belle Époque in 1950s filmmaking. So let me underscore this point. These are not simply American movies about France. Even though I have argued already that the French have been deeply implicated in helping the Americans, the Americans were working with French images, American French have been consuls are involved in helping the French, the Americans are making the movies in France, etc. I also want to underscore here the French, the French made movies also about the French Belle Epoque at the time, and it's not an isolated situation or coincidental situation. That is the point I'm about to make. Renoir's French Cancan reminds us of the extent of the mutual influence of the French and Americans in creating a vision of Frenchness after the war. It also underscores the traffic not only in images, but in personnel between France and America. Jean Renoir was the best known wartime filmmaking emigre from France to America. He arrived in New York in February of 1941, the first visit to the United States by the 47-year-old son of the celebrated Impressionist painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Renoir left France to protest the collaboration of the Vichy government and the complete domination of the French film industry by the German occupiers, although there is a much more complicated story about this, which I'd be happy to discuss in the Q&A, because in my book I um, discovered, unfortunately, um, some wonderful Renoir uh, anti-Semitism, uh, alas, uh, before he left France. Um, once in the United States, he moved to Los Angeles. His time in Hollywood is often described as a constant frustration during which he made few films, five and seven years. Yet after the war, Renoir never really fully returned to France. Renoir died in Beverly Hills in 1979, a naturalized American citizen. Most interesting, it was not until long after the war's 1945 end that he returned to make movies in Europe. In 1953, he made a Franco-Italian co-production, Carlos Go, which was filmed in Rome, released in French, Italian, and English, and set in 18th century colonial Peru. He returned to France the next year to make French Cancan, a film that recounts a fictionalized version of the opening of the Moulin Rouge. The film, released in 1955, was the first he made in France after 12 years spent in Hollywood. Has anyone seen French Cancan? Okay, French Cancan is a tenuously plotted and colorful movie musical. When Renoir returned to France, despite his nationality and lineage, he seemed to be imitating 
the Hollywood-style films he complained about during his stay in Hollywood. About his first film made in France after the war, Renoir claimed that, quote, he desired to make a film in a very French spirit, unquote. But the New York Times saw it otherwise. When the film opened in New York in 56, the paper noted, quote, it offered a tale that might have been cribbed directly from some of the pictures made in Hollywood, unquote. Like the English-language Frenchness films, French Cancan takes place in and around the Moulin Rouge. But beyond treating the same subject matter as the Hollywood productions, Renoir also visually evokes the other films by using their pictorial vocabulary and techniques. For example, Impressionist paintings, including his father's Moulin de la Galette, come to life in the film. The film is also littered with Belle Epoque posters. At the start of the finale, set in the Moulin Rouge, a poster of a dancing girl on the room's interior wall splits open, and a line of girls come leaping through it as if stepping out of a poster. Like an American in Paris, Renoir's film ends with a long final dance number, a 20-minute can-can finale held in the Moulin Rouge. While it differs from the American film to the extent that the dance is more of a classic backstage musical number, the structural placement is entirely like MGM's film. Frenchness as the Belle Epoque, whether in America, in American films, or in French films, its association with spectacle, color, movement, song, dance, girls bashing through posters, the can-can itself, draws viewers' attention to the power and importance of film as much as it depicts France. These 1950s films link Frenchness to the visual culture, both high and low, of film's generative moment in the French fin de siècle. In addition to the more obvious travelogue qualities and to the selection of French topics and locations in order to add a patina of quality to these big-budget productions, by looking at the films more closely and carefully considering their production and their reception, we can see the way in which certain cliches that stood in for France had a particularly long shelf life. The Belle Epoque stuck in film for a number of reasons, from the very specific history of the American collecting of French Impressionists to the more general fact of the pub prolific reproduction of these French-created visual entertainment cliches when poster art first developed. Long before Hollywood, art and commerce began to share the same artist's palette in France. This may help explain why Putting aside his lurid biography, Toulouse-Lautrec and his world appear as a leitmotif in the 1950s Frenchness films. But films are visual expressions that need to be both contextualized and read as such by foregrounding the film's production reception, taking a more careful look at the films as visual expressions. We can see that the use of Frenchness as the Belle Epoque had a more precise significance in visual terms, going back a half century to the medium's origins in the Belle Epoque itself. The 50s Frenchness films served as vehicles through which filmmakers, all filmmakers, both in France and America, could locate themselves as part as a of a shared and significant popular culture that began in France at the century's dawn. And you can say began in France in 1892, if you take Spectacular Reality's argument about Emile Reynaud's Pantomime Lumineuse in 1895, if you go with the Lumiere brothers. And thus the cliches take on an exclamatory power, but as cliches they rarely have otherwise. The success of the Frenchness films would make the Franco-American film connection the kernel of an increasingly global film culture after the war. But it goes a long way to helping explain the role of the production and circulation of visual images had on a creating a powerful half-life of 19th century Paris beyond its own time and place. So I want to end by invoking just how long the Belle Epoque has lasted. For as many of you know, another Moulin Rouge opened in 2001, and it opened the Cannes Film Festival. Director Baz Luhrmann explained why he chose to make a film with a Belle Epoque Parisian setting. He said, quote, I really wanted to do an 1890s musical because I thought it would be a great way of looking at our millennial moment. The popular culture of the 20th century 
basically grew out of that moment in time. And since you're looking at moments of change, I could not resist. Lerman's view echoes the 1950s Frenchness films in ways that suggest that we still connect with the Parisian Belle Epoque. Lerman's own concept and his use of the Belle Epoque popular culture defies natural, national categorization and operates instead at the level of an imagined global hour. The Australian-born director locates Paris, capital of the 19th century, as the birthplace of our popular culture. And so the Belle Epoque, influential and widely appreciated, at once rooted in Paris and yet international in scale, has had and is a great moment of change, a half-life whose end is nowhere near in sight. No wonder France remains the most visited country in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa, for that wonderful, wonderful talk and a great